Page 1228, John 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose Of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Jews then murmured against him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall, be, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I tell you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum the day after he fed the 5,000 with, with five loaves and two fish uh, on the opposite shore in a deserted place. The uh, crowd was amazed when they saw that miracle. They came, became convinced that he was the great prophet of whom Moses had prophesied would come. And they were ready at that moment to make him a king, to be a liberator, to uh, improve their lives, uh, get, help them get rid of uh, Roman occupation and Roman oppression and, and Roman taxes. Uh, But Jesus was not about to let them do that. He uh, 
absented himself from them, and when they couldn't find him the next morning, they went in search of him. Uh, they got in boats. Some of them went back to Capernaum, and lo and behold, they found him in the synagogue in Capernaum, where we find him now uh, disputing with them or speaking to them. Uh, they have a, uh, uh, expectations of him, but Jesus is not pleased with those expectations. He's not pleased with them because what they want is all uh, explainable in uh, what we would call carnal terms or worldly terms or temporal terms. They, they want more food. <laughs> uh, they want relief from Roman taxes. They think Jesus is the means to uh, a better life here and now. And, and Jesus uh, is not happy about that. But although he's not happy about them, he doesn't, he doesn't desert them. He, he stays there to, to teach them and to encourage them. He encourages them to seek food that, that doesn't perish, uh, like the manna did. Uh, food that would be good not just for one day, but food that would be good for eternal life. He encourages them to, to believe in him as the one sent from God. He encourages them to seek the true bread that uh, comes uh, down from uh, God, from heaven. And he says, I am that bread. Uh, he is uh, continuing to, to encourage them to, to look to him, to believe in him, to trust him. Now, it's, it's amazing to see Jesus do this with people who are so slow of heart to believe. He doesn't, he doesn't give up on them. He continues to, to, to push them. This is uh, a good example for you who are elders in the church. You know, you, you recognize that there are people in the congregation who aren't where they should be, and uh, what do you do? Well, you, you don't give up on them. You continue to encourage them. Although you should follow the advice that Jacob uh, uh, said when he came back uh, to the promised land and met up with his brother Esau again. He had uh, large uh, flocks and he said to his brother Esau, he said, if I, if I drive the flock too hard, <laughs> then the little ones will die. And uh, so you have to drive them. But you have to drive them in a way that recognizes that uh, you can't go faster than, than is proper even for the little ones, uh, lest you uh, push them too hard, too fast. It's also good for us to see this because we're all like the disciples. You know, Jesus is frustrated here with the crowd, but there were times when he was frustrated with the, with the twelve as well and said to them, uh, Where is your faith, O ye of little faith? And and we're like that, and, and we need to, to pray, God, God, I am of little faith, and I am a person of weak faith. Please be patient with me, God, and help me. Help me to grow. Help me to grow in my faith. That's what Jesus is, has come to do, is, is to help us to grow in our faith in him, that we might experience the fullness of the salvation that he has won for us at the cross, and that we might become mature. Read again Ephesians 4 that talks about how uh, God has given uh, pastors and teachers so that we might all obtain maturity. You should all want to be driven to maturity and be praying that God would help you to become mature. Now, as we look at this passage today, we see Jesus uh, talking about himself again as bread. We've seen that uh, before. And we uh, we have to... Uh, uh, here he's, he's making a comparison 
between uh, uh, the bread that he is and the bread that God gave uh, through Moses. And this is uh, not new that there would be a comparison in the, in the text. Uh, John's Gospel is full of, of comparisons where Jesus is compared to something else and shown to be superior or better. It started out with uh, a comparison with John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist came to uh, bear witness uh, to the light. Jesus is the light. Uh, therefore, Jesus is, is better than John. Uh, John uh, said as much when he said, uh, he's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bride. He must increase. I must decrease. Uh, Jesus is, is the better prophet than, than John the Baptist. But there's a comparison also between Jesus and Moses. Uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The law, uh, probably a reference there, not just to the Ten Commandments, but to the whole Mosaic uh, administration, the Mosaic Covenant given at Sinai, uh, which was had grace and truth in it, but the grace and truth that Jesus brings is, is so much better than what uh, Moses brought. And then there's... Uh, uh, Jesus and Moses with regard to blood and wine. <laughs> Moses turned uh, water into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. Moses' blood brought a curse. Jesus' wine brings a blessing. There's a, Jesus is, is better than Moses. Uh, Jesus is better than Jacob. Jacob gave a well that uh, served generations of God's people with water that they had to go back and get day after day. But, but Jesus gives water that wells up unto eternal life. And so Jesus is the greater Jacob and with the better water. Well, now we have another comparison with uh, the, the manna that uh, Moses, uh, God gave through Moses uh, is uh, compared to Jesus. And Jesus is the better bread. Jesus is the better bread. That's what uh, we are looking at today. Now, as we look at that, we have to remember that we're dealing here, and in these other passages as well, we're dealing with metaphors. I hope you are familiar with what a, a metaphor is. It is a, a figure of speech, a figure of speech that is given for illustration to uh, make something more vivid and clear to your mind. It's uh, not meant to be uh, taken literally. For example, if, if, you had, uh, if you were to do something nice for me, I might say to, me, say to you, ah, oh, you're a real peach. Well, I'm not saying you look like one or even that you taste like one. But when I say you're a real peach, I mean you're a, a real sweet person. You know, you're a, a very kind, generous person. And it's a, it's a, a metaphor not to be taken literally, but one which drives home a point. Now, uh, metaphors are different than similes. Similes are another figure of speech where we say something is like something else. In a metaphor, you say it is. You are a peach, you know. Uh, uh, you don't say you're like a peach. But in a simile, you would say, yeah, that something is like something else. And when you do that, when you use a simile, it, it invites uh, investigation. Uh, Jesus used similes when he said the kingdom of God is like something. And then you're supposed to stop and think about that and, and examine, now, how is the kingdom of God like this? And how is the kingdom of God uh, a little different than that? And what is the point of comparison? And what does the point of comparison teach us? Similes are, are, are meant to be opened up and examined. But metaphors are just 
in your face, right there. It, it makes a point. It makes it forcefully. And uh, you're not supposed to, to dwell uh, on, well, how, is, how, how am I like a peach? How am I not like a peach? And that sort of thing. And, and that's what we have here. We have a metaphor where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, we're not supposed to take that literally as if Jesus were the Pillsbury Doughboy who's been put in the oven and baked into bread, and now you could uh, amputate his arm and slice it into round slices and put them in the toaster and have them as toast for breakfast. That would be taking it literally, and that's not how it's supposed to be taken. Jesus is the bread of life, is a metaphor that just tells us that, yeah, bread, that's, that's a symbol in the Bible. It's a symbol in the Lord's Prayer. It stands for everything that we need for life. And, and Jesus says, I'm everything that you need in order to really live. And uh, so he calls himself the bread of life. And uh, uh, in this passage, uh, we looked uh, uh, two weeks ago at uh, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. But uh, uh, now he extends the metaphor. Some people say he introduces a t- new metaphor or some say he takes the same metaphor but enlarges it or extends it because he says, not only am I the bread of life, but now he is saying, you must eat the bread of life. And uh, so now... Uh, He's not just the bread, but he is bread that needs to be eaten. Now, as we look at our text, I want you to take note of the bookends, or what I called uh, two weeks ago, inclusio. That is, there is a thought at the beginning and a thought at the end that uh, bracket or envelope the, uh, the text uh, that are uh, bookends on the text. The text that we looked at two weeks ago had bookends. It had an inclusio, and the, the bookends were in uh, verse 35 and 48, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The text begins, I am the bread of life. The text ends, I am the bread of life. And so it tells you, between, included between those two, uh, you have an exposition of what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. Now, we don't have a, a, a bracket or a, an envelope or bookends that are identical in this case, but you have uh, bookends that are the same thought. And the same thought is uh, found in uh, verses 49 and 50, that's the beginning of the text, and verse 58, which is the end of the text. And uh, in uh, 48, he sa- uh, 49, he says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. And then again in verse uh, 58, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So the text begins and ends with the idea that this bread is different than the bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness. The bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness uh, did not sustain them to bring them into the promised land. It didn't give them eternal life. Uh, They died uh, eating it. But uh, this bread is better. This is the better bread because this is the bread that comes down from heaven that your father gives you and eating this brings you eternal life. So Jesus is the better bread that needs to be eaten. And the the central thought between these two brackets is found in the middle verses, the middle verses which uh, 
uh, found in verse 53 and 54. For Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. He's saying the same thing twice. He's repeating it twice because this is the central idea. If you don't eat this bread, you don't have life. If you do eat this bread, you have eternal life, and I will raise you up at the last day. Now, uh, he's saying there that, you know, if you don't eat this bread, you don't have life. You may have physical life. You may have a physical existence in this world, but life Life as the Bible defines it, life as as we are meant to experience it, life as God intended when he created Adam and Eve in his own image and in his own likeness, a life of, of knowing God, loving God, serving God, being with God, a life of joy and peace and ever increasing glory, life in all its fullness. You don't have that. You're 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 shut in, you're closed in, you're all by yourself. And you don't know what life is all about. You know, I, 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 we're sort of experiencing something uh, of what this is like uh, with these uh, shutdowns and these stay-at-home order, orders. Imagine if you had to stay at home and you had no radio, you had no television, you had no telephone, you had no books, you had no mail coming into the house. You were really shut in and and barricaded from the rest of the world. You have no contact with the world. You just have yourself. You're living there all by yourself with no contact with the outside world. We, would, we wouldn't call that real living. We would, we would call that just existing. And it, it would be very dull and depressing. And it would be terrible to, to be cut off from, from the world and from what life is all about. Well, thankfully, in these stay-at-home orders, we were not cut off from the world. But the world today, which is separated from God, is like a person shut up in their own house with no contact with the outside world. This world is God's world. And we're supposed to live in this world and, and see His glory in everything that He's made. And we're supposed to be able to reach up and, and touch God. <laughs> touch God with our prayers and touch God with our worship. And we're supposed to hear God, hear Him speak to us through His Word, through the Bible. We're supposed to have intimate communion and fellowship with, with God and, and to rejoice in the wonderful world that He created and, and learn to, to live in this world as God's world and, and, and to enjoy Him in this world. The chief end of man is to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And people who are cut off from that are dead. Their lungs are expanding and contracting. They're taking in air. Their heart is beating. There are brain waves inside their head, but, but they're dead. If you don't eat of this bread, you're dead. But if you do eat of this bread, then... You are really alive. You know what life is all about, what life is meant to be. You you see God in, in all the things that He has made. The heavens declare His glory, the firmament His power. It's all around you and you rejoice in it day by day. 
and you know sweet fellowship with Him through His Word and through prayer and through worship and you strive to, to live for Him and obey Him. If you feed on this Word, you're really alive. And even though the body may die, that's not the end because Jesus says if you eat this bread and, and have eternal life, I will raise up your body at the last day. Death even won't separate you from, from the life that I will give you if you eat this bread. Well, your future then, your happiness, your, 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 the whole tenor of your existence hangs on this one thing. Have you eaten this bread? This is the bread that you really need. Without it, you're dead. You have nothing. With it, you have everything. And that brings up the big question. How? How do we eat this bread? How do we eat this bread? And, and that question sort of comes up in our text, although uh, the, the crowd expresses it a little bit differently. They don't say, how do we eat this bread? He said, they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he give us his body to eat? They're assuming that in order for them to eat this bread, Jesus has to give his flesh to them. Now that's, that's a big mistake. And it's a big mistake that continues to be made and has been made in Christendom, that, that big uh, arena of anyone and everyone who, who calls himself a Christian, whether they deserve to be called that or not. In Christendom, for the last 2,000 years, a lot of people have thought that when Jesus says you have to eat this bread, that Jesus intends to give us to give you his flesh and put it in your mouth so that you can chew on it and give you his blood into your mouth so you can drink it. Jesus doesn't say, I give it to you. He says, I give it for you. I give it for you. There's a world of difference between give it to you and give it for you. The bread which I give for the life of the world. You know, Jesus could, he could put his flesh and blood in our mouth. You know, flesh can be manufactured. It's, it's manufactured today for burn victims. They take a few cells of your uh, skin that isn't burned if you're a burn victim, and they put it in a Petri dish with, uh, with nutrients, and they grow skin. And then they take that skin that's grown in the lab, and they, they put it on, on burn victims over their scars for uh, plastic surgery. It's... Uh, uh, a way to, to treat uh, burn victims. And, we, we, you know, God could, could do that. He could manufacture the skin of Jesus or the muscle tissue of Jesus by, uh, in laboratories all around the world and, and then uh, take little bits of it, perhaps, and, and put it on a cracker and then uh, have somebody put it in your mouth. And, and uh, it would just be a tiny bit so you wouldn't taste it. You'd only taste the cracker. Uh, he could give you his flesh that way. And as far as Jesus' blood is concerned, well, Jesus is pretty strong. He was able to survive 40 days uh, fasting without dying. I, I imagine he could donate uh, several pints of blood every day and have that blood uh, divided into tiny, tiny little droplets, just a little a mist. You know, you put it in a mister and just one little speck of mist uh, on that cracker with a, with a piece of skin. And, and there's Jesus' flesh and blood on a cracker to put in your mouth and what food that would be. That would be such a super food, such a regenerative food. It would, it would just transform your lives. 
for, forgive this uh, illustration, but it, when I think about it, it always reminds me of the of a Star Trek movie. Uh, forgive me if you're not a Star Trek fan, but there was a Star Trek movie that uh, 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 Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy go back in time to the 20th century, and they have to go into a hospital, and there Dr. McCoy sees a patient who's uh, suffering from uh, kidney failure, and uh, he uh, quickly uh, gives her a pill and uh, then runs off. And uh, a few hours later, uh, the woman who received this pill uh, sees Dr. McCoy, and she starts shouting to everybody in the hospital, there's the man who gave me a pill, and I grew a new kidney. You know, uh, think of Jesus' body and blood on a, on a cracker as, as super medicine that wouldn't just regenerate a kidney or some other missing part of the body, but renew your life to such an extent that that uh, you'd have you'd never die you know you'd have eternal life uh, what a superfood that would be if if that's what Jesus intended and you know Jesus could do it not just by uh, manufacturing his skin in a in a laboratory petri dish or going to the blood bank and having a couple of pints drawn uh, every day he could simply do it by taking an ordinary piece of bread and an ordinary cup of wine and saying abracadabra hocus pocus this now has my dna in it and i'll put it in your mouth and you have this superfood is that what Jesus is talking about here when he says my flesh is true food and, and my uh, blood is true drink? No, he's not giving it to us. He's giving, he has given it for us. Listen to what the Bible says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 11, he lays down his life for the sheep. How does the good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep? Does he... Say, oh, the sheep are tired of eating grass, so I'll lay down in the field and let them munch on my body. No, he sacrifices his time, and sometimes he, he may be called to sacrifice his life or put his life in danger. That's what it means that he, he gives his life for the sheep. First uh, uh, John 3:16. by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Galatians 1, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Titus 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. In John 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the enemies of Jesus huddled together, and one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus dies for us, and uh, he gives uh, himself for us, not to us. Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word for is often found in Scripture to describe uh, what is given uh, on the altar. And uh, here it says, uh, for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If Jesus gives himself to anyone, as the as uh, 
body and blood. He gives himself to God. He offers himself up to God. Hebrews 7:27. Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself, when he offered up himself. Uh, he offered himself up to God. Now, when Jesus introduces uh, into this text the idea of blood, uh, you not only have to eat his flesh but drink his blood, then uh, for sure we know he's talking about the giving of himself in sacrifice. For when the Jewish people thought about blood, they always thought about the blood of the sacrifice that is sprinkled on the altar. Leviticus 17, verse 11, and in many other places, uh, blood is spoken of this way, for the life of the flesh is in the blood And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life is in the blood. The blood is put upon the altar. And Jesus is when says, I am the bread of life, and and you have to eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. He's talking about the fact that his flesh and blood are going to be given up on the altar. They are going to be given up in sacrifice unto God. Uh, to pay for their sins. But uh, he's, uh, he's talking about uh, going all the way to death. But now, if, if flesh and blood is not given to us to consume in our mouths, how is it then called food indeed, or true food and true drink? Uh, well, you need to recall that... Uh, Jesus uh, said that we will benefit from it by believing. You know, I I said uh, two weeks ago, and I tried to emphasize it by saying it twice, that before Jesus introduces the metaphor of eating, he gives us its meaning. We benefit from him not by putting him in our mouth. We benefit from him by believing in him. Uh, John 6:29. Jesus answered them and said, "This is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in Him, whom He has sent." And again, John 6:35. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life, and whoever comes, whoever comes to me, and whoever believes in me, uh, shall never uh, hunger or thirst again." And then uh, chapter. Uh, Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or again, John 6, verse 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus there in those verses before he introduces the idea of eating tells us how we are to benefit from him as food, not by putting his DNA in our mouth, but by believing in him. Uh, Compare verse 40 and verse 54. They both end the same. Has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. But how do you get there? How do you get he will have eternal life and raise him up at the last day? Verse 40 says, whoever uh, believes, Whoever looks to the Son and believes in Him has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And verse 54 says, Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood. That means you you get the same result by two different things. So those two different things must be the same if they yield the same results. Whoever looks to the Son and believes, whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood. 
What does it mean to feed on his flesh and drink his blood? It doesn't mean put put his DNA in your mouth. It means believe in him, look to him and believe in him. In the 4th century after Christ, uh, the uh, Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, said simply, Believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. If you want the bread of heaven, don't open your mouth. Open your heart. His, how is his flesh true food and true drink? His flesh is true food and his blood is true, dri- true drink because on the cross he gives them as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is the means of giving you life. Life in all its fullness. Eternal life. Because he sacrifices his flesh and blood on the cross, you have life. And therefore it can be referred to as real food. Food indeed. The bottom line here is that we need to feed on Jesus. And we need to recognize that from verse 53 to verse 59, all the verbs about feeding and drinking are present tense, which means it's an ongoing activity. That's why Jesus introduces in this passage in verse 56 uh, that whoever feeds on him abides in Christ, and Christ abides in the one who feeds on him. He brings up the idea of abiding, which is, again, an ongoing intimate relationship that results from feeding on him. And uh, this abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us will be developed in later chapters in John's gospel. But what it, what it amounts to is that abiding in Christ is the, the fruit of faith in Christ. Because we believe in Christ, which means because we feed on him, and believe in Him, uh, we abide in Him. And abiding in Him means uh, listening to His Word, speaking to Him in prayer, worshiping Him, and striving to obey Him. That's, that's what feeding on Christ is all about. If you are feeding on Christ, then you're, you're learning to listen to Him, you're learning to pray to Him, you're learning to to worship Him, and you're, you're striving to obey Him. That's how you know that you're, you're feeding on Christ. You're, you're trusting in Him, and you see that that trust is producing this abiding in Christ. Is that what characterizes your life? Is Christ the meat and drink of your life? What do you feed on? What... What motivates you? What empowers you? What what moves you? His agenda or yours? When people look at you, do they see someone who is centered on Christ and striving to be like Him, who is feeding on Him daily, or do they see one who lives apart from Christ? Recently, my wife had a conversation with a Christian person in the community who doesn't go to this church, and I'm going to refer to this person uh, generically, try not to use uh, uh, gender-specific pronouns and uh, throughout uh, this little story, but uh, gender 
specific pronouns were used in their conversation. But anyway, my wife was having a conversation with a Christian person from the community. And in the course of the conversation, the name of a member of this church came up. And the, uh, the Christian person with whom my wife was speaking was surprised that my wife knew of this person. And the Christian person from the community asked, how do you know of this person? And my wife said, well, that person is a member of Covenant uh, Church where I'm a member. And uh, the Christian person from the community uh, got a puzzled look uh, on the face and said, oh, uh, that person doesn't seem like the kind of person who goes to church. Now you're all wondering, who is the member of our church who doesn't seem like the person who goes to church? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, were they talking about you? Would people look at you and say, you're the kind of person who doesn't appear to go to church? Or are you the kind of person that does appear to go to church? You know, this is a week for self-examination, where we ask ourselves, you know, what, what is my life really all about? Is it about my agenda? Is it about doing what I want to do? And I don't care how it affects other people and, and, and what it's doing to, uh, to the people around me and my home and whatnot. How do, is it my agenda that's important to me or is it Christ's agenda? Am I living for myself or am I living for him who gave himself for me? On the cross? Am I seeking to feed upon Him and showing that my faith in Him is real by reading His Word, praying to Him, worshiping Him, and striving to obey Him? Examine your life, repent of your sins, and come in the joy of forgiveness to the Lord's table next week. Amen.